you have to feel like you've hit rock bottom when when Brett Kavanaugh is like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I've chugged a handle of vodka through my ass, but <laughs> you lost. wonderful time of the year if i keep on singing will you keep on ringing the bell on youtube it's the worst cheesiest song on the platform um oh my god hi everyone welcome to the bituation room podcast live stream sorry i yell uh just so excited um I am your host, Francesca Fiorentini. Please do ring that bell if you're watching on YouTube. Subscribe to this channel if you haven't already. And hey, if you're downloading and listening to this podcast in the future, question, does Christmas happen? Does it even, do we get it? Does it, are aliens going to come and intercept it first? Do we make it? Um, rate this podcast if you're there and as you're there. Uh, give it five stars. You know, be honest. Give it a four if you're like room for improvement, but like, tell me why, you know what I'm saying? Just kidding. I really don't care. Give it five stars. Um, and thank you all for being here. I see all in the comments, Casey, Chuck, uh, all the good people, Alexander. Thank you so much for that super chat. You can super chat this channel, of course, but you can also tip us. This show is free as is all hashtag internet content, but you can tip this show and help support my tiny little sleigh ride operation here, TBR-Live on Venmo, TBR-Live on Cash App. Um, thank you so much to everyone who's given 20 bucks or more. You guys are my ride or dies. Love you. Dylan, Kate, Rick Henderson, Juan Vasquez, Brent Andrews, Charles Pearson, George Bricado, and so many more. You get a special shout out for me when you give 20 bucks or more. Uh, and also, we donate a portion of your donations uh, of your tips, there we go, to seed the vote, which still is knocking doors in Georgia safely in, at a distance, uh, six feet distance, masks, etc. but to get out the vote in Georgia, as we know, that is so crucial. And wow, Purdue and Leffler just keep on self-immolating and let's, mm, let's fan them flames. Fan the flames. Um, yeah, what, uh, what else do I have to say? Uh, Thank you once again. Um, this is a, it's, we've got such a good show. That's what I wanted to say. We've got a great show. Um, Nato Green is back. Hey, -o. Um, looking forward to having him on board as well as Astra Taylor, author and co-founder of the Debt Collective, which is a union for debtors and who's also been part of the drive to push Biden to alleviate and or abolish student debt within his first 100 days of office. We're going to talk to her all about that. She's a fantastic writer. And so not only are we going to talk about debt, but the future of democracy. What is this thing called minority rule that we are hearing so much about lately, mostly because Republicans are hell bent on maintaining it as uh, evidenced by the fact that they still can't accept the results. Still can't accept the results of this election. Um, and that's a little bit of what I wanted to bitch about this evening. So I've been reflecting, 
not a lot because like don't do that but a little bit uh, you know safe reflection <laughs> i can't look too much in the past but without revealing my age uh too much although this is very much going to do it uh i was 17 years old when george bush um in quotation marks won the presidency in the year 2000 and al gore conceded pretty quickly um although he narrowly conceded right he almost conceded immediately and then there were all these irregularities in florida uh and then we entered into the hanging chads and all these counties etc cetera, etc cetera, in a case that ultimately went to the supreme court and was decided by the supreme court um, which stopped a recount in florida counties and effectively swung that election to george w bush um it's been 20 years since that moment this weekend and I'm reflecting on it and just, I just have one thing to say. I want my adulthood back. That's it. Just, I want it back. Like it's been 20 years and think about, think about what it's meant. Think about what the last 20 years have meant. The fact that Al Gore, and part of the reason I bring this up is that we've seen the ways that Republicans have fought tooth and nail over an election in which there was no fraud, in which there was no shady, like brother of the brother of the presidential candidate is also the governor of the state in which there, you know, like there has to be a recount in blah, blah, blah. Like there wasn't any of that. And they are going to fucking bat. Imagine if Democrats had done that in the year 2000. Imagine. But Gore didn't want to fight it out. Right. And that's not the way the Democrats roll. And yet it's been 20 years of endless wars, George Bush starting two plus wars of militarization of the border, of trillions of dollars of national debt, uh, right? That we're, that is, you know, falling on the backs of Americans, of, a, of the 2008 financial collapse falling on the back of Americans, right? Um, of the 2016 political failure to not let a demagogue, fake authoritarian wannabe Hitler ascend to power you know, and like, and having fascism literally at our doorstep, I want my fucking adulthood back. Like, and I, and I, this is obviously squarely on Republicans, of course, but Republicans have told us time and again who they are. They keep telling us they want minority rule. They are fascist. They don't believe in democracy. They don't want black people and brown people to vote. Right. They keep telling us who they are and what they will do to actually get their way and maintain control from gerrymandering to voter suppression to these shenanigans we're seeing now. And somehow Democrats still don't get it. We still don't get that. Oh, yeah, we're going to have to fight. We have to fucking fight. Um, and I think we've seen the failure, not just of you know, obviously not just of the Republican Party completely to not hold back on their fascist tendencies, but of the Democratic Party to not mount that actual resistance and actual fight against what is so clearly, you know, a, a Machiavellian plan of oligarchy, right? And plutocracy. And yes, they're absolutely part and parcel of that system. But it is so upsetting that like now we've got what? More dark money in our elections, overturning Citizens United, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, the or not overturning it, but the, the Citizens United decision, right? Like everything's gotten worse and it all stems from those fucking hanging chads, dude. 
And I swear to God, it makes me like, I, I feel bad for people whose name are chat is Chad anyway, but like, I swear I, I, anyway, the hanging Chad joke is for just me and like a few other people. The point is, is I want my adulthood back. That is my, that is what I am bitching about. And I'm realizing the seedling of so much of our discontent and our problems had to do with that election. And here we are 20 years later and we're not actually better. And we, we have the gore, not even really, we have the gore in office. What are we going to do with that power? How are we going to solidify those gains? Let me bring into the habituation room and the conversation. Um, a good friend. Um, let me read his formal biography. <clears throat> Comedian and union organizer, his comedy albums, the NATO Green Party, and the Whiteness album are now available on Bandcamp, so you can financially support independent comedy instead of sending fractions of pennies to Spotify. Please welcome our friend, NATO Green. Uh, <laughs> Did hey. I uplift you? <laughs> hey. Hey, guys. How are you? Hi, NATO. NATO uh, hype. NATO hype, NATO hype. We, we, yeah. You know, uh, t this afternoon, um, one of my 12-year-old uh, children asked me where Marx stood on the question of Kantian versus utilitarian ethics. <laughs> okay, I think you're actually a bad father now. I, I, <laughs> I haven't quite gone there, but I, yeah. yeah, you're a bad dad. <laughs> so it was like, oh, uh Hmm. Tough question, kid. Um, let me think about it. On on what utilitarian husa? What? Uh, the the train question. Do you know the train question? Like the if like let's say there's a train tra a train on a on a track, and if you uh, uh, there so there's some ethical scenario that they pose in philosophy classes where you're the switchman, mm -hmm. and if you don't switch the track, it'll kill five people right. but if you do switch the track it'll kill one person yes and so there's this like moral i think that's right i think I, I think i didn't switch the track and so and, I, and there's this moral conundrum about do you sacrifice the one for the greater good or do you do nothing because then you're choosing to kill the one person instead of yeah like just letting things proceed yeah, it reminds me of like when Walter White didn't interfere when Jesse Pinkman's girlfriend was choking on her puke, you know, and it was like, did he kill her? Kind of. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, right. When he when he let Jessica Jones die. Yeah. So he, he can go bounce into that other series that she was in. <laughs> <laughs> she wanted to get killed off. Let's be yeah. real. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. She was she was in first position on another contract. So. Uh, Absolutely. She was like, please let me, let me go out with all the puke. Yeah. NATO, what are you bitching about this lovely Sunday evening? Um, what I'm bitching about is the state of the COVID closing reopening discourse. Cause like here in the Bay area and in California, like for those of you who are not here in the early parts of the pandemic, uh, we are um, it's, I think it's safe to say that in San Francisco, we believe that we, because we are so far up our own asses that we can't get COVID, that like the COVID particulate can't penetrate our buttholes far enough to because <laughs> that's where we are. Uh, and so like we were just so smug for so long about like, well, you know, we didn't flatten the curve.
crushed it. We inverted it. We're so great. We listened to the scientists because people in San Francisco had AIDS first 30 years ago. And so now we know all about pandemics. That's right. that's that's like what, how people were talking in San Francisco for a long time. And now, of course, the Bay, you know, California is like real bad and everything is going back into lockdown. And they're like, oh, yeah, back to like how it was locked down in March because we're following the science, but also we're not following the science because like, you know, I know it's many lifetimes ago now in pandemic years, but, you know, in the in March, we knew so much less about COVID, you know, mm-hmm. like in March. Do you remember we were like, you know, disinfecting the mail, uh, um, you know, and like everyone wiping was, down our Trader Joe's snacks. Yeah, but just well, like wiping down everything and like just you know there was like a lot of because we thought it was spread by surfaces and by you know just like a furtive glance from you know across a crowded intersection you know it's like (laughs) somehow we get you covid and now it's like you know now we have so much more information about air transmissible diseases and particulate and droplets and all those kind of you know and masking and like and so they're like want to go back to march um but then you know, then goes to dinner at French Laundry and completely disregards his own orders. And the mayor of San Francisco goes to dinner at French Laundry as well. And then, and French Laundry is a fancy restaurant for those of you who don't know. Same then, place. I'm surprised Garcetti hasn't gone there or he's just, he's just brutalized the protesters outside of his home. Yeah, right. Uh, well, and also like you can, you can have your driver pop you up to the French Laundry from anywhere in Northern California, but it's a little bit more of a schlep from uh from from la so you know and so then it's like and and it's it's just it's so like if you're gonna if you're gonna follow the science fucking follow the science if you're not gonna follow the science and you're just gonna cave into politics of like oh we're closing the playground we're not closing the playgrounds and we're closing you know things but we're not really closing those things and we're gonna allow people to go shopping but not that much and hopefully they'll be responsible but we know they're not going to be it's just like because shopping malls are still open here, I believe. Right. Yeah. I mean, and so there's like a bunch of things that have, but then meanwhile, like, you know, they still don't even know, like they know that we need to have ventilated schools for schools to reopen, but they don't even know what vet- adequate ventilation of schools means. Like, right. Also like a good HEPA filter is like a thousand bucks or some shit that schools cannot right. afford. So um, that's what I'm bitching about. I mean, I, I think it's it's such a bigger conversation. And I know as someone who follows, you know, local SF politics and then California politics more broadly, like it is such a discussion I feel like we need to have um, that has everything to do with inequality in this state. And it's like, of course, there are lots of COVID cases because workers aren't being pr- properly protected, you know, whether it's migrant workers, whether it's workers in, you know, the Walmarts, et cetera, like the food industries that are here. So it, you know, there's a stat, I think, in L.A. where it's like the Latino community is facing COVID at twice the rate as the white population here. Like, that's insane. And they're more often uh, likely to be essential workers. Right. They're going to be people who make minimum wage um, or postal workers or whatever. So it's like it is one of those perfect examples of putting California in this under the spot like a Orange County is real. And there are people who are protesting mask ordinances. And also, B, this I'm is a stop highly you right there. Orange County is not real. I disagree. <laughs> it exists. No, yeah, no, but Orange, you know, the Orange County is a thing. So is Huntington yeah. Beach and all these sort of like MAGA country places within California. And then also the fact that it's just an unequal state that, you know, talks a big talk about 
being liberal, but has no economic plan for justice. So, right. Well, it's like, you know, I mean, it was the same thing in San Francisco. There was this study that like, you know, something like 90% of the COVID positive cases were it were it in the mission district, which is if you're not here is a historically uh, Latino and specifically Central American neighborhood. Yeah. And, um, and so and it's exactly what you say. It's it's all of the other. It's like, they can't afford to just, you know, it's like, if you're a, a bus boy, or a janitor, you can't telecommute. And so you're going to work. And then you probably don't aren't don't have the position to like demand adequate PPE and safety precautions, and appropriate ventilation and distancing at work, and you can't afford to not pay your rent, and you are more likely to be living in a house with a bunch of other people as part of your extended family because that's, you know, because that's how inequality works. And yeah. then somebody gets sick, and then the whole household gets sick. Um, yeah. So. It's bad. Everything's awful. We've been, stimul stimulus money's been delayed for a, a week. So kudos. Yeah. And, and there's still like, you know, we've talked about the eviction moratoria on, on here and there's still like, like all these, just all these politicians circle jerking each other about like, maybe we should extend the eviction moratorium, like that was scheduled to end February one for another, you know, eight days or something totally <laughs> ineffectual and irrelevant. Like, no, five days. Like, ah, yeah. oh, no, seven. <laughs> right. Oh God. We're seeking bipartisan consensus. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the inadequate amount of time that people will have that will exactly. still result in mass suffering. Exactly. Say. And I see people in the comments bitching about uh, once again being hung out to dry by uh, our elected officials in terms of any kind of relief money. But let's get into the real meat of the week, NATO. This and everyone else is the week where. Okay, so... Only four things happened this week. Yes, many, many more. I don't care. But these are the things we choose to focus on. Most important, if you were lucky enough to be in a coma. Um, but here we are distilling it all down for you. This was the week where the Supreme Court, in a 9-0 vote, dealt a death blow to Trump's legal challenges to the election by refusing to hear a case that was brought by a Texas attorney general and was supported by 17 Republican attorneys general and 126 Republican Congress people. That's right. Uh, let me not be the first to say, ah, ha, 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 motherfuckers. Um, even after stacking the courts with rapey jocks and pro-life fembots, Trump still could not make this happen because ACB have free will. Uh, Trump apparently isn't giving up, though, tweeting, quote, we've just begun the fight. And thank God. Right. Because like, I don't know about you, NATO, but I was wondering when they were going to start <laughs> Like, after the four seasons debacle, a drunk witness, attorneys, more attorneys with more covid than court cases like we've been waiting. Let us know when the fight is real. It's uh, did you see uh, uh, this week? Maggie ha Haberman was on Fresh Air. Uh, uh, Maggie Haberman, the New York Times reporter who covers Trump pretty extensively and like it was this in some ways it was it was she just made him seem so pitiful because she was like he's lonely you know he's just looking <laughs> That's always been her line <laughs> like he's just looking for love and acceptance and he doesn't want anyone more than when they're rejecting him uh, oh god like that's and, the rapiest thing you could possibly say right like that's like negging a president I'm like oh please let me 
time you're in prison. I'm just like so sad. Oh, and like not nagging, but you know what I mean? Like just such coercive, like BS. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's perfect for this generation of like, like, you know, the, of, of rapey misogyny where like, you know, like long ago, the Vikings who would just plunder and pillage and rape and take whoever they wanted and ravage them at their will. Now it's like, just like whining and wheedling and cajoling to like, like, Oh, just please stop talking. Um, So, you know, it's like, do you like, uh, do you realize, like, I? It's it seems like kind of a turning point. I know we've said this, like, everything is a, a turning point for Trump, but sure. you have to feel like you've hit rock bottom when when Brett Kavanaugh is like, "No, nah, I'm good." <laughs> <laughs> a man who's seen so many rock bottoms. Yeah, it's like, it's like no, no, I'm gonna sit this one out, bro. <laughs> yeah, man, I've chugged a handle of vodka through my ass, but <laughs> you lost. Yeah. <laughs> Um, many Republicans uh, also seem to think this is the end the Kansas AG said quote it's time to put this election behind us and a Republican congressman of Illinois said the Supreme Court is not the deep state it was this was not a win you know what this is a case of Hmm. robes before bros I'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry I'll see myself out the the almost the robes are bros though so um i just want to sing one little final song before we move on to this or say one little thing oops i revealed what i just want to say it is the end of the road so let me be the first to say although you've come to the end of your road still you raise more dough it's unnatural you lost the white house you're a one-term hack okay i'm done voice to men anyone oh that was voice to men it's it's, it's, no no you sounded very much like the cantor at my synagogue (laughs) what Uh, your cancer must be uh, a G. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving on. This was the week where we discovered that establishment Democrats are losing their minds, not politically, but literally losing their minds. Uh, in a New Yorker article, journalist and my muse, Kate, My Kate, Jane Meyer, wrote that it's a bit of an open secret in Washington that California Senator Dianne Feinstein is suffering from dementia. The 87-year-old has been caught repeating herself multiple times in hearings and appearing not to understand her briefings by staff members, probably because she's fucking 87. Uh, So when Feinstein calls the Amy Coney Barrett hearing the, quote, best hearing she ever had been a part of and hugged Lindsey Graham, and a lot of people asked if she remembered which party she was on, turns out the answer was no. She doesn't remember. (laughs) She doesn't remember what she had for lunch. Like, she doesn't remember what party she's on. Look, it's so revealing because Democrats would rather weekend at Bernie's, their uninspiring centrist, than actually support Bernie himself. Uh, And honestly, America is not just uh, an oligarchy and a plutocracy and a duopoly. But as Mayer points out, we are now, new favorite word, a gerontocracy or rule by old people. Um, like, I don't like, of course we know why these old politicians can't pass meaningful legislation. They can't even pass their food. 
Like, they, they don't care about Medicare for all. There's like, they're like, what about Metamucil for all? Okay, that one was dumb, but the rest I stand by. It, I mean, look, it's not dumber than rugs before bros. So, um, <laughs> uh, in the in the article, uh, one former Feinstein aide argues that quote, even if her faculties are diminished, she's still smarter and quicker than at least a third of the other members of the Senate. End quote. Yo, way to say the quiet part loud. <laughs> um, <laughs> what you're saying is that. Many, many senators are actually doddering aristocrats being rolled from one banquet to another while their staff do coke and actually run the country. Cool, cool, oh cool. God. Veep is Veep is a democracy and democracy is a sham. Veep, Veep is a documentary and democracy is a sham. That would have been <laughs> funnier if I had said it right the first time. <laughs> okay. uh, it's funny, like like when you hear this kind of stuff, like it it's it should sh shine a light on the whole question like when i hope we remember this and i say that knowing that we will definitely not remember it but i hope we remember it the next time the question arises about whether someone is qualified for a political position like the way that people talk about politicians being qualified like hillary sure. clinton was the most qualified candidate ever they told us and aoc is not qualified cuz she used to be a bartender and then you know people are like i don't know biden and trump both seem like they're in the early stages of dementia and people are like no that's El Elder abuse. And I'm not saying that we should pull the plug on Dianne Feinstein. I mean, I'm not not saying that. Um, but I am saying that... I wish there was a plug to pull. Sorry, yes. I am saying that if you just like... I don't want to be an elitist about it, and I don't want to like fetishize technical expertise, but if you aren't capable of finishing the crossword puzzle in Highlights Magazine for children... Maybe you shouldn't be a senator. Do you know what I mean? Maybe then you shouldn't be allowed to vote on how the Fourth Amendment applies to Facebook. Like, maybe sit this way, you know, like. Yeah. Or, or just that cognitive test that both Biden and Trump were like bragging that they got right, which was like, which which one's an elephant? The elephant, the rabbit, or the alligator? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, Um Look, it, it is, yes, he has a stutter. Biden has a stutter. But you cannot, I'm sorry, even just being the kindest, the, I just, I'd have to be ignoring my own eyes and ears to say he is not also a little bit of a sundowning old man. Like he, ha you, you know, every time he says something, you're like, why are you mad, bruh? And then you realize he's just old. And like old people are always mad. You know, it's like, you would be too if your dentures just kept falling out or, you know, I don't know, or you're incontinent or whatever it is. The point is, or everything hurts. I get it. Everything hurts. You're 87. You, everything hurts. And you're still trying to figure out how floppy disks work. And people are like, <laughs> what about 5G or whatever? And Biden, why aren't you on TikTok? And you're like, what are you talking about? I'm going go to go to the- What are you TikToking about? I'm going to go to the mainframe in, that takes up an entire <laughs> room over here. And, oh god it's bad it's it's really bad i mean do you think that i mean like i i am interested right because uh our mayor uh newsom because you're because you're getting older not our mayor our governor newsom my bad no i because i'm getting older see clearly i just called newsom the mayor the point is is like he's going to be appointing someone to fill kamala's seat like maybe we should also have him appoint someone to you know yeah, yeah. I mean, it's gonna like that's gonna be like a whole clusterfuck because he's gonna appoint. He gets a point at least one and maybe two senators, and also an attorney general, and also. But I mean, then there's gonna be right? like a whole cascading bunch of bullshit. 
Uh, so yeah, we have our own little fight here in California coming up very soon. Um, the next story is about the vaccine, but NATO, I really don't have much for me, but I can set you up with a lot of context. <laughs> you know how I love context. I mean, you know, like if, yeah, if, uh, we're what? Jost and Michael Che, like I will be Jost <laughs> and you can be funny. Um, just kidding. Uh, this I, was the week where I, I won't be funny and you won't go home to sleep with Scarlett Johansson. So <laughs> <laughs> This was the week where shit got even grimmer as the U.S. reached a daily death toll of 3,000 and a case count, a daily case count of over 200,000. The total number of U.S. COVID cases is 16 million in total that we've had. But the vaccine is coming. Uh, the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine is being beginning to roll out around the world. In the U.S., the Trump administration locked in doses to vaccinate 50 million Americans, um, but passed multiple times on locking in 500 million more doses, which could have inoculated 250 more million Americans since it's a two-step vaccine. Um, he just passed on that. Like multiple times Pfizer was like, do you want to lock in more doses? And now we won't get a lot of doses. That's not the joke. That's just the facts. <laughs> it's, you know, it, I mean, it is the joke in the like, uh, slit your wrist, wrist funny and not your uh -huh. slap your knee funny kind of way. Like, <laughs> like, I think this is now, like, I've always thought that the most, um, the, like the most tragic moment in American history is the battle of new Orleans. Like that there were people who died in the battle of new Orleans during the war of 1812, which is famously a battle that occurred after the war was over. But because mm -hmm. it was 1812, the memo didn't reach them in time. Like, and so, and like no one in the world, in, in American history was like more aggrieved than the family members of people who died in the Battle of New Orleans who were like, what the fuck? It was already over. Uh, and so it, this is like that, but you know, where, uh, where like now there's just going to be another hundred thousand people die because, because Trump's, the Trump administration, the art of the deal at work thought they were holding out for a better deal. Yeah. But but here's the thing is Did you you Francesca Fiorentini are going to think that it's stupid and corrupt and venal, but you would be wrong. Because when you look at the Trump administration and you see someone stupid, what you're actually seeing is a new grift. And the question you always have to ask yourself is is it stupidity or is it a grift? We should play that as a drinking game on the show. Oh uh, god. Because this could easily be a grift. The head of uh, Trump's vaccine development program is named Mons Salui, who before serving the transition was on the board of directors of pharmaceutical company Moderna, which is developing the competing vaccine to Pfizer. So by failing to lock in the contract with the Pfizer vaccine, what Trump did is force the future Biden administration to have to cut a deal with Moderna to reward uh, the business associates of Mosef Salui, it's a grift. Uh, and he, they did it all for the low, low price of an extra 100,000 dead people. That is the as, art as of the deal. My God. As I say in Italian, eccolo qua. Uh, there it is. That's, that's what it is. Thank you, Nato, for reading beyond the headline and, uh, the first paragraph. Um, God fucking damn it. Of course. What, of course. Was, uh, was it a joke? Who's to say, really? 
Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. One last story, uh, and then we are going to get into the sitch before I read your comments or after I read your comments. Um, This was the week where an Israeli professor formerly involved with that country's military space program told a newspaper that space aliens have already visited Earth, but that a, quote, intergalactic space federation is preventing both the United States and Israel Israel from revealing the truth to the rest of the world. Now, I'm just going to call BS on political grounds, not because I don't believe it's real, but just because since when do Israel and the U.S. obey a multilateral federation? (laughs) They hate the U.N. who consistently tell them to stop (laughs) stop occupying Palestinian land, but we're supposed to believe they care about a space federation? Okay, sure. Um, And according to the professor, Donald Trump is aware of this agreement and was on the verge of revealing it, but ultimately didn't because aliens insisted that, quote, humanity isn't ready. And that totally checks out. Like, imagine if you're an alien and the only humans you meet are Donald Trump and Bibi Netanyahu. Like, what the fuck else do you expect the rest of Earthlings to be like? You're like, no, 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 no. They cannot know about us. Like, that was enough humanity. I'm good. As a Jew, Francesca, (laughs) I'm tired because I don't know if you realize how much work it is for us to control the media and the banks and the global world economy through globalism and the protocols of the elders of Zion, and also to control the galactic federation. Obviously aliens chose to deal with Jews because they enjoy our delicious babkas. They like a babka. (laughs) Not everyone else knows how to make a yeasted, bready, chocolatey dessert, but we do. And so that was uh, very helpful in inter- interstellar diplomacy. And we're very clever because according to the, the article in the Jerusalem Post, uh, that w- the aliens have given us technology like anti-graph technology on the condition that we don't talk about it and we don't use it, which to the external viewer looks exactly the same as aliens not giving us anti-graph technology. <laughs> <laughs> Like there is, it, it, it is, it's, it is the most like, like, like stereotypically on the nose, like Jewy shtick, like hustle to be like, oh, oh, that thing, that's the anti-grav technology from the aliens. No, I, I can't show you how it works. Just trust <laughs> me that that thing right there in the corner, that's my alien anti-grav technology. Would you like but, some babka? Would you like some babkas? <laughs> Uh, I love, so when I first heard this story, like Matt and I just like said the words out loud, intergalactic space federation, and then started laughing for 10 Uh seconds, just like unbreaked eye contact laughing. But then like by the eighth laugh or the eighth second of laughing, there was a little bit of a like, what if, (laughs) you know, there's like really, (laughs) I mean, think about it, bro. Cause like, like the Nazis on Twitter one of the one of the new like like uh, anti-Semitic slurs de rigueur. I don't know if Matt has dealt with this one. Is apparently we're shapeshifters. Oh they call yes, shapeshifters. Sure. Uh, like the scrolls in Captain Marvel were shapeshifters. See, it all comes together. See, like the Hebrew Hebrew numerology, the Hebrew letter Chai also represents the number eighteen, which symbolizes life. See, and it's hi, like hi, hello, aliens. How are you doing? <laughs> Please give us your ant- your secret anti-graph technology. See, 
Think about it, Francesca. <laughs> You've got to troll your own trolls with all this NATO. With please. your thinking part of your face where the thinking happens. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, uh, listen to the Whiteness album, everyone. It's very funny. <laughs> NATO. Funnier than that. No. Uh, it NATO continues. It's, it's, you know, it might be surprising, but the material that I plan to say is funnier. <laughs> all right before we go to our interview just a few super chats uh brandon on youtube i was embarrassed to live in one of the states that joined the texas texas in the lawsuit i'm glad the supreme court said lol no thank you for that pete and rick show newsom was a sucky mayor of sf and even suckier is gov true uh very sucky tesla ranger what would i want with more vaccines i don't have that many friends says trump um yeah, no, he's like he's like rationing out his, you know, super secret monkey meds, as we say, you know, to Julian. Like, what are they on? Like Regeneron and shit like that. All the people who've got COVID. Like, you think oh. Jenna Ellis got that shit? No. No, there was an article today. The, the White, White House staff are getting the vaccine. Fucking hell. The, after, I mean. After saying the whole thing was a hoax and denying the whole thing and shitting on it, they get the vaccine first. If that's not a, uh, you know, torches and pitchforks moment. No, it is. It is a torches and pitchforks moment. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, why as soon as I can go outside, I'm going to. Mm. I, I, I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to pop on over to Postmates and see if I get a Postmate to deliver me a pitchfork. <laughs> I got to find a place to buy a pitchfork that's not on Amazon because I got to support local business um, yeah. like Home Depot and Target and other giant conglomerates. Um, I'll be right back. I'm going to look up pitchforks on Etsy. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to find a guillotine on Etsy for a while. It's uh, very difficult. Um, Ray Riley, thank you so much for the super chat. More songs. Thanks, Ray. You already got two. We've got a Hanukkah segment coming up. Maybe there's a Hanukkah song that NATO could sing us if he knows any. It can't be dreidel either. That's cheating. Oh, yeah, sure. No problem. <laughs> I got you, babe. All right. Well, we're getting into it this week. Um, we're talking all about uh, debt, debt relief, uh, future of democracy with author Astra Taylor. This is the sit. She is a filmmaker, writer, and organizer who most recently directed the film What is Democracy? She's the author of Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, and a co-author of Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience of Debt Abolition, just out from Haymarket Books. She's also the co-founder of the Debt Collective, a union for debtors. Please welcome Astra Taylor. Oh, hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much entertaining. for being here. I have a very important announcement. Uh, I just checked, and Etsy has vintage rusty pitchforks. That's how they're described <laughs> for seventeen dollars. So, Ooh, too much. you want them rusty? Yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna be you know attacking the ruling class, you need a rusty pitchfork. Um, I never know if like I feel like like that's so basic, like pitchforks and torches. I don't know, Astra. Don't you feel like I feel like that's two Simpsons? Like we're Springfield and we're ignorant you know, versus, um, I don't know, like barricades and, uh, and Molotov cocktails is more like our, our shtick. Non-violently, of course. I don't believe in violence. I'm just saying. <laughs> Pitchforks well, I mean, always, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I'm saying the subtitle of the book, Can't Pay, Won't Pay, is economic disobedience, right? What other forms of disobedience besides, you know, throwing a throwing a brick um, can we can we do that will uh, inflict some damage, right? Absolutely. That's a great segue. Really yeah, strong segue game. <laughs> yeah, strong segue game from two comics. We were not going to do it that well. I was definitely not. Uh, but now that we are pivoting to an actual discussion, you know, I... I've read a lot of your work, not enough, but I've read it. It has informed me in uh, a couple of news broke pieces or one in particular, but I wanted to, you know, one of the things that I think we all agree on, I think you've said this in a Guardian article that you wrote about debt relief is that Biden has to deliver and he's got to go big. Uh, otherwise, we're looking at 2024 Trump running again. We're looking at actual fascism. We're looking at, you know, um, yeah, like it's not head wound Hitler anymore, it's actual Hitler. And you have argued that debt abolition, specifically student debt abolition, could be that linchpin, could be a way that he could deliver immediately for the American people. Just describe for us, like, what would that actually do for, for people and for the economy? Yeah, thanks so much for asking that question. I mean, here's the thing. Biden has to deliver, absolutely, but he won't do it unless he is forced to. We know that we did not elect a change agent. He's made it very clear that he wants, you know, his own version of Make America Great Again, turn back the clock, you know, to the Obama era. Uh, but absolutely, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of an economic crisis. I mean, you all have spent the last half an hour laying out the pain that people are experiencing. And so, this administration has to make a real immediate material difference in people's lives. Yeah. And the chances are they're going to be facing an obstructionist Senate controlled by Mitch McConnell, right? I mean, Kamala would be the tie-breaking vote if, if good things happen in Georgia. Um, and so they need to be serious about executive authority. What power will the executive branch have? And so one thing that they can absolutely do without a doubt is abolish every penny of federal student debt. So this is a way to provide a massive economic stimulus to say to the American people, we're doing something. We're doing something that is big, is bold, and makes a big difference in your lives. 45 million people have student debt. Before the pandemic, a million people, over a million people defaulted on their loans every year. People struggle under the weight of their, their loans. And it's, you know, disproportionately young people, but a lot of older people have student loans as well. Older people have their social security garnished because of, um, because they're in default. This is something that is dragging down um, a generation. People, you know, are living with their parents. This is all pre-pandemic stuff, right? You know, can't start families, can't get on with their lives. Debt is held disproportionately by people who are um, marginalized. Black women hold the most student debt. And it makes sense, right? Because black students have less intergenerational wealth and then they're facing uh, you know, wage discrimination. So it's harder to pay it off. So what you see is that the gap of, among people who do graduate between black students and white students is white students do slowly chip away at their student loans. But for black uh, graduates, they just balloon, right? The, the interest keeps compounding. 40% of people with student debt never even managed to get through college, right? They can't do it wow. because, you know, they're probably working two jobs. We know that a lot of students were housing insecure, food insecure before the pandemic. So, you know, it's one of these things that with the, literally with a signature, the department, uh, the secretary of education can 
just say, this was a policy mistake. We're in an emergency and let's provide this huge economic stimulus. Uh, it would provide, erasing all student debt would provide estimates say about $108 billion of stimulus a year, create over a million jobs. Uh, and this, this is something that can happen because in the Higher Education Act of 1965, Congress already gave Mm -hmm. The Department of Education, the ability to do what's called compromise and settlement, to compromise debts. The federal government's able to make debts. And with that power, it's implicit. They also have the power to not uh, not collect on them, to erase them, right? Yeah. And so this is an authority that actually the person who used it most recently was Donald Trump because he uh, used compromise and settlement authority, his administration. Wait, Donald Trump Jr. or Sr.? What? <laughs> Donald Trump Jr. or Sr.? Donald Donald Trump. Is Donald Trump Jr. the president? Did I call him Jr.? I can't remember. Oh, <laughs> anyway, Donald Trump's administration used compromise and settlement authority to erase some interest uh, a few months ago. So this is, you know, this is this is something that has been road tested. And the question now is, you know, is Biden going to do it or is he going to pass on one of the biggest uh, boldest moves he can make to make a difference in people's lives, run away from a popular policy, right? Because it's popular even with people who don't have student debt. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then, yes, yeah, that set his party up for a massive loss in 2022 and screw us all. Yeah. And I, yeah, go ahead. So, um, a lot of like liberals, liberals love means testing. So, they can do. you talk about like why, like, why does a a, a blanket uh, debt relief policy the right policy? Like why, like like when you talk about about forgiving debt, do you mean like including like art history majors, like everybody, everybody, especially podcasters art history too. podcasters, podcasters? <laughs> yeah, definitely podcasters. So I always say you can't spell means tested without mean. Uh, and there's something almost every means tested program it creates unnecessary bureaucracy that stigmatizes people. And that actually typically is so hard to maneuver that people who technically are deserving, right, by mm -hmm. whatever standards, don't get the relief or the benefits that they're entitled to because they can't figure out this, they can't figure out the bureaucracy. And I don't know, you know, I'm sure some of your listeners, you know, have tried or know people who are trying to get public service loan forgiveness, right? And I don't know if you know, but the statistics are that like less than 2% of people who should have gotten this public service loan forgiveness, where they've worked at nonprofit jobs for X number of years, they've paid yeah. every payment on time. They, the federal government just said, oh, no, never mind. You know, yeah, you've kept your end of the bargain. You've planned your whole life around this, but no. So bureaucracy is, in my opinion, typically broke on purpose. <laughs> they don't want it to work. Just like when we saw the unemployment benefit sites crashing in Florida in the spring of 2020, right? In the spring of this year, it was revealed by uh, government officials that they actually made the unemployment claims website so that it was not user-friendly to artificially suppress the numbers. So, sure. you know, I think there's a bureaucratic- yeah, That old Ticketmaster strategy, you know, like, oh, uh, no more tickets sold out, like be at, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, only with this, it was like life and death. You can't get, you know, you couldn't get sure. your, your unemployment. Um, and so so I think that's, for me, that's part of the problem with means testing is that we end up spending all this money on this administrative gobbledygook when we should be spending that money on people <laughs> and what they yeah. need. The other thing is that student debt is already means tested. Billionaires and millionaires don't have student debt. 
It's already means tested. And so this is something where, you know, people who have debt had to take out loans to go to school. And there's there's this social benefit. First, there's the social benefit that I just discussed, which is this economic boost, right? We would all be better off with this money circulating in the economy instead of being paid to our loan servicers. We, you know, we all benefit from the jobs. We'd all benefit from not having people in our community default because when yeah. you default on your student loans, there's all these consequences, right? Your credit score is screwed. It will impact whether you can get a job, impact whether you can rent a house. So it, like, you know, we are not just isolated little atoms. We are affected by the bad things that happen to each other. So it's preventing people from having these disastrous consequences of default would be good for everybody. Um, and then I think there's just the fact to me that education shouldn't be something we have to debt finance. We, you know, so for me, that that is the bigger philosophical picture is like student debt is a policy mistake. A generation ago, people didn't have to borrow so much to go to school. In fact, student debt was imposed as a punishment. Ronald Reagan, because y'all have been talking a lot about California. He was like, yep. the state shouldn't subsidize curiosity. And that's a quote, right? Tuition was imposed at the University of California system after protests in the free speech movement, after the after the Black uh, Panther movement arrived at, uh, started emerging from community colleges, Merritt College and other um, colleges where people were getting free education and feeling like entitled citizens. And then austerity, uh, okay. neoconservatism, you know, attacked that and imposed tuition um, to control students, right? To make them less. Um, They're learning too much about democracy and, yeah. you know, other countries in the world. Uh, yeah, stop, yeah, gotta stop that. God, Ronald Reagan, uh, I'm not that old, but he was awful. Um, I do want to ask you. He's a bad guy. Bad guy. He, so, uh, or, um, debt relief is, I mean, it's becoming actually uh, kind of popular. So 230 organizations, nonprofit organizations, including Greenpeace, the NAACP, signed this open letter to Kamala and, and Joe Biden. <laughs> Why do I lead with Kamala? I'm like, let's go with the one we know is secure. Um, like with Joe Biden and uh, to Joe Biden and Kamala saying like, you know, uh, you need to make good on this promise to relieve student debt. And the promise was only $10,000. The letter seemed to imply that they need to go a lot bigger. Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren have co-sponsored an open, I think it's just a call for $50,000 of student debt to be, um, to be like, abolished and i'm not sure if that's means tested or it's just anyone who has up to fifty thousand dollars what do you make of of that push and do you think let's say fifty thousand is enough why is chuck schumer doing this is he that afraid of being primaried by aoc yeah. i mean i'm i'm for full cancellation i think it all needs to go that's the position of the debt collective this is that's happening. a cancel culture i can get behind that's cancel culture exactly <laughs> This is only happening. This is only on the table because of organizing and organizing. I'm going to take full credit at the debt collective deserves major credit for. So the debt collective emerged out of Occupy Wall Street. There's the Occupy student debt campaign. In 2012, we had a protest marking one T day, the day student debt passed $1 trillion. It's now at 1.7. If Biden doesn't act, we're going to be protesting two T day under uh, his administration. And that's going to be, you know, 
fucking devastating because it's going to be 14 days, <laughs> a few presidencies later. We need to we need to quit this. We need to cancel uh, debt. And what we did was we launched the student debt strike in 2015 with students from a predatory for-profit college called Corinthian Colleges. And we were able through this strike where people said, we're not paying, we shouldn't have to pay. We coupled this militant economic disobedience with creative legal strategies. And we found out that just like we discovered, we actually, our work, uh, is part of what uncovered compromise and settlement, this authority. We also discovered something called defense to repayment, where if a school lies to you or defrauds you, you have the right to have your debt canceled, which is fair. Yeah, Only yeah. the government had never bothered to write the rules. So then we, you know, with our roots in Occupy Wall Street, have to build this app so people can act on their rights. And the Department of Education then basically like steals our website and puts it up really quickly, you know. But we won a billion dollars of debt cancellation. Wow. And what we showed, so Elizabeth Warren has said that that's actually where she realized like debt cancellation, mass debt cancellation is possible. And then we've been pushing compromise and settlement. We had a letter to Hillary Clinton, of course it was useless, where we were gonna say Hillary Clinton cancel student debt with compromise and settlement authority. It's taken us the last few years as we've advanced the legal argument, right? Um, we've advanced the legal argument to the point where now Warren and Schumer are mm -hmm. publicly advocating for it and saying we want $50,000 via executive action using compromise and settlement authority. So there have been grassroots activists pushing this issue tirelessly, you know, for now going on almost a decade and trying to mainstream these ideas and essentially saying to the federal government and its representatives, you know, we know the power you actually have. We've done our homework yeah, and we're gonna do your legal research for you. And then we're also gonna organize militant actions and strikes and public awareness campaigns to hold your feet to the fire. Right. Because we know it's not just about having good arguments. We have to literally tell them how to do it and where to sign. And then we have to build the public pressure so that they can't not use the power they possess. And our position is that not canceling student debt in 2021, given all the suffering that's happening, is an abuse of power. This is not mm. asking Joe Biden to push an envelope the envelope. Really, you know, it's not particularly brave. It's not funding a new program either. It right. is it's not. It's low hanging it's kind of fictitious. It's debt. It's mm -hmm. just, I mean, yeah, like, I, like, yeah, I'm, I am not up on what the downsides would be, but it's like, once again, it's how are we going to pay for it? Oh, just not just let it ride. You know, the, <laughs> like downside, okay. the downside is that there's always the slippery slope argument, which is like, what's next? Cancel rent. And then we're like, yeah, you know, what's <laughs> right. next? cancel medical debt. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> What's um, uh, can, can, can you talk more about the opposition? Like, like how much how much of of the opposition to debt cancellation is like in the companies that are specifically profiting from administering debt, as opposed to sort of what you're describing as like the what's next kind of more sort of just general like ruling class ideology about not wanting the masses to get uppity. So. Student debt is very interesting in that it's the vast majority of it is held by the federal government, right? Yeah. So over 95%. So it makes it a very interesting type of debt. There are loan servicers and they, they contract out to debt collectors, but ultimately we're saying to the federal government, which doesn't need our money, <laughs> right? It doesn't really need student debt payments to function. We're saying, you know, cancel it, admit this was a policy failure, and let's let's start. Let's try to solve this problem and do something different. So yeah. uh, the resistance. I mean, I'm look, 
loan servicers won't be happy, debt collectors won't be happy, but the real obstacles are actually, you know, people inside the government who helped build these programs and who are attached to them, centrist Democrats who really believe in meritocracy, you know, in this twisted version of meritocracy that we have, right? Where it's like, you should pay your own way. Um, and then, of course, Republicans who just want you know people to not be entitled to anything and want people to you know literally be weighted down by debts, to be weighted down by poverty, <laughs> because you know that benefits them. They they don't want us to be an entitled democratic public. So you know, right now, I think the the a lot of the resistance is you know from centrist Democrats who there's something. You know they're just very technocratic. They want they want these tweaks. They imagine that they can remake this bureaucracy, but they don't. They they don't believe right that people are really entitled to a to debt relief or entitled to an education or really entitled to much. Mm -hmm. um, when you, if you're organizing around other kinds of debt, then there are different interests, right? So if you are organizing mortgage holders, for example, yes, then you'd be going right up against the big banks. If you're organizing payday loan holders, then you're going up against payday loan companies. So but it's almost case, an it, yeah. easier, easier site of struggle because yes. it is held by the federal government. Um, and that's that's a benefit to this entire the the entire campaign. I mean, there's I do a very think clear, there's a very clear lever, right? Again, yeah. it's compromise and settlement authority. And there's you know, this is this is about public goods and about the fact that increasingly individuals have to debt finance what should be publicly provided. So we've had wages stagnate since the 70s and we've covered that up with debt. Right. So this yeah. is this is, you know, part of the it, it is tied to these bigger trends. The fact we're underpaid at work and then we have to borrow. <laughs> and the fact that there's, you know, there's no uh, universal health care. So then we end up buried in medical debt. But student debt is a very uniquely solvable problem. And so um yeah, that is part of the strategic power of it and why we're focused on it. And shout out to um, the late and wonderful David Graeber, who has a whole giant book about debt and the like deep immorality of the concept of debt and how debtors and people who owe money have been like villainized for, you know, so many centuries and how bizarre we like our fixation with you have, but you have to pay, but you have to pay when it's like this basic good anyway. Um, I wanted to move on to your your work on writing around democracy um, because I found some an interview that you did. Uh, this is for Slate. So, so, so solid. And the way that you describe minority rule um, and specifically like essentially you're, you're, you, you talk about the founding fathers because I was writing this piece about minority rule and I was like, okay, let's talk about the founding fathers. Like, what did they believe? And you talk about this, I assume in your book, but definitely in this interview about the book, which was like, basically the founding fathers didn't believe in democracy. They did believe in minority rule. And now we're seeing the GOP fully embrace that idea. Um, can you just talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, democracy by definition, I mean, just in its basic etymology, right, is rule of the people. And so it implies majority rule. Now, of course, we can, you know, think like, okay, we want to balance that with minority rights and all of this. But, you know, fundamentally, it means the people make decisions and have some say over governing themselves. And, um, and we know the founding fathers were really skeptical of democracy. I mean, they were they were clear about that. They worried about minority rights, but they weren't worried about minority rights in the way we think about it today. Like they weren't worried about the rights of black people. Uh, they were worried about the rights of 
the of the elite who were landowners who were you know uh, ha had plantations right and how do you protect their interests because they wanted a more representative system than what they had been coming from right they didn't want to live in a monarchy but they didn't want right. to be too representative that was the question <laughs> because they thought well if the 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 regular people have a say well what they're going to do is dispossess the rich and they talked about this very openly and one thing they thought that people would do if there was mass enfranchisement was abolish debts with Madison said it was the wicked project of debt abolition. And in fact, there were a lot of debtors. Wow. Hell yeah. Days, right. Um, and so, yeah, you needed to impose minority rule to hold your property, to hold your land, to hold your slaves and to make sure that the debtors would pay up. And I think what's interesting, you know, democracy had to be pop, you know, people had to fight for this word, fight for this concept and for the expansion of inclusion in that representative system, right? So that you know, more people have to fight from the outside to get in. And what we're seeing now is the Republican party basically realize that their positions are so unpopular, they're never gonna win majorities. And so, yeah, you, as you said earlier in the segment, been engaging in voter suppression for a long time and gerrymandering in these tactics. And we're, we've tipped into a kind of gloves off phase yeah. of it. Where they're like, well, actually, you know, Senator Mike Lee, for example, but, which is what inspired the piece that you're talking about, the interview you're talking about. He said, basically, you know, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. And I don't right. like ranked democracy. And Newt Gingrich today was basically, you know, lambasting the secretary of state in Georgia, you know, and saying, why is he trying to make it easier for people to vote? That makes it harder for us to win, right? They know, and Trump said this in March, he said, basically, you know, yep. the more people who vote, means that Republicans won't win elections again. So they, they're increasingly at war with democracy, small d democracy, and not just with the Democrats. And, um, and you know, they have a long tradition in, in American politics to draw on, right? And so what happens was when you talk to these people, as I did making my film and writing this book, you know, you talk to the sort of young conservatives and they can very, you know, kind of confidently say, well, the founders didn't like democracy. You know, right. and that's why we have the electoral college, and that's why we have checks and balances, and that's why you know right. they were trying to protect against you uppity exactly. women from voting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're allowed yes. to write books and make films. Well, that's not right. Yeah, I mean, I, no, these kids. I mean, I talked to these twenty somethings, and they were just like, you know, they were like shuddering at the idea of New York City, right? And they called it a liberal cesspool. And so, you know, they they're they're going back to their aristocratic roots in a way. Um, so yeah. there's something kind of honest. I mean, I, that was my feeling today as I was reading these comments from Gingrich. I was like, they're honest. <laughs> you know, They don't try to dress it up. Like Ronald Reagan spoke in the language of the moral majority. They don't do that anymore. They understand that majorities spell their doom. That's what I, I love about what you've been saying is just, sorry, Nato, is just that like, that actually now it's so mask off, it's so gloves off that they're fully embracing the idea of minority rule and not even trying to, yeah, dress it up or pretend. And so it's this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy like, well, yeah, we of course we voter suppress because that was the whole point anyway. That's what the founding fathers wanted. Da, da, da. And just by the way, it's it's a republic, not a democracy. It's like there's so many ways to say this, but my way is like that's like saying uh, you know, a poodle is a canine, not a dog. Like it right, exactly. is republic exactly. just republic means it's not a, mo a monarchy. Right, it a doesn't republic is a representative democracy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly.
But I think one thing, I, I did get an interesting correction today from a fellow named Jesse Wegman, who just did an op-ed in the New York Times. He's on the editorial board. And he said, you know, if you read Madison and Jefferson later on, what they actually come to is they, they, they change their minds. And so he quotes Madison saying, you know, actually, majorities are the heart of democracy. Like, I was wrong. So, you know, that's that I think when we are dealing with the it's a republic, not a democracy guy, and it's always a guy, I think we need to, you know, remind him that his man Madison did come around. He evolved on the question of the masses. Um, I was so uh, I was going to ask, like, how do you in the in the in the struggle over like the the right wing's attempt to consolidate permanent minority rule, apartheid, call it what you want, um, uh, the and the center being like so spineless about it. How do you think about like the the obsessive focus in in our political conversation on norms? Like how is that is that a distraction? Is that a real thing? How important is it? The norms thing, I mean, I'll try to be concise because yeah, I and mean, if you just want to go off about norms, I'm I mean down. the norms okay. thing is like a lot, you know, norms can be incredibly anti-democratic. I mean, that's the thing, right? We look at the electoral college as a norm in American democracy, you know, um if you look at the role, you know, the core political institutions have played, it's often been very reactionary. I mean, look at the Supreme Court, right? We we kind of tend to think of the Supreme Court in terms of its heyday during the 1960s and Brown versus BOE. But I mean, the Supreme Court was incredibly reactionary for most of American history. So, you know, to me, I'm like norms what norms? <laughs> Some norms need to be abolished if democracy is our aim. And, you know, and by that, I mean a kind of multiracial, substantive, meaningful democracy that is also that is that is based on the insight that you can't have political equality without economic equality. Like, sorry, those two things go hand in glove. So, you know, we're going to have to challenge some norms. And I think it's, you know, I think liberals have really not been that helpful for the last four years in so many ways in the dis in in the sort of discussion, the political discussion that's been raging since Trump was elected. I mean, there was a lot of sort of um yeah, romanticization of norms. And then a lot of this discourse about populism and populism being the problem, which is a way of saying democracy is the problem, right? The people are the problem instead of yeah. looking at the the sort of bigger issues of inequality and oligarchy and people's lack of say over uh, the governing agenda. So we've got to bust some norms if we want to actually, you know, live in a in a democracy worth worth its name that deserves the name. Don't just stand there, bust a norm. And bust yeah. a norm, man. <laughs> bum, bum, uh, bum. Um, also, also like establish some norms. Like I want to bust some, but I also want to be like, no, the president can't pardon himself. Okay, moving on. <laughs> like, yes, yeah. the president must actually divest from all of their holdings. Okay, moving on. Like all the things that, oh, this like, yeah, exactly. I guess those are norms, but we've never actually made them laws that we can hold yeah. people account to, you know? I, I think that's really right, right? Which is like, well, what norms do we want to see come into existence? And I mean, that's what I think one of the other sort of things is like, wow, what is going on about this moment is we are having an election, right? And as you've said earlier, it's like that these Republicans won't, won't admit they lost um, and that they're building on, they're exactly right, building on what happened in 2000. Um, but who do you hear talking about how we need to 
break the norms and change the rules of the game. You hear like Lindsey Graham saying that, right? Like if we don't remake the electoral system, we won't win another election. What? Yeah. And so you, I mean, I, that's where you just feel like God, the Democratic Party is just, they are not ready to meet the moment because what they should be talking about boldly is what new truly democratic reforms do we need? How could we actually, you know, create a, a political system that functions. I mean, I was doing a, a, you know, a conversation the other night with people in Australia about democracy. And they were just talking about how they have a system of compulsory voting and they have an independent election commission. So it's, you know, that. totally fair. Everyone trusts it. They all have, you know, I'm a vegetarian, but they all have democracy sausages on election day. Very triggered, yeah. very triggered, Astra. I'm sorry, I can't hear about a more healthier democracy than mine. <laughs> just like... It's very upsetting. Um, so, so uh, in terms of the the pot, like the the struggle over democracy expansion, like you know, I I, I do a, uh, I'm a union organizer, and like a lot of I feel like a lot of the sort of issue specific movements, even though de even though democracy is like the condition of everything else and our ability to win anything else. I feel like a lot of the movements that are focused on specific issues or specific constituencies don't feel like the things that you're talking about are their issue. Like, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. we have to focus on, you know, minimum wage and job protecting the right to organize and whatever. And that like, we'll support the democracy ex protection and expansion, but like seeing it as, as a priority feels like a stretch. Um, what's, what's your sense of like, the outside of the party system about like the broader forces of civil society or whatever you want to call them and how they relate to that question. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And that's something that, that's been on my mind and worries me too, right? Is our movements are so sil silent. So we have the environmental movement, we have racial justice, we have you know economic justice, which I'm in, we have the labor movement and democracy has been left I mean, there's very little civil society attention to it. There's, you know, I'm in North Carolina, so the Poor People's Campaign was pretty amazing when there was um, a lot of energy around voter suppression with the local GOP. But, you know, it's, I think we're, I, I think we need to do what we can. And that's why I'm thrilled that you're raising the issue. It's like, do what we can to kind of proselytize to the, our fellow leftists and say, this is something that actually all of our all of our movements have to take seriously because it does our change does flow from this right I mean it's one of these things where we're not going to get these other um, we're not going to get the other reforms and transformations that we want if we don't address this issue and you know the people that have been left to kind of dominate the space the kind of democracy advocates I mean I think they they managed to eviscerate it right they they act like it's something that just needs to be left to the experts or a few tweaks here yeah, instead of uh, I think they're all the lanyard monkeys who are like yeah no leave it to those of us who like you know studied poli sci at harvard or whatever the app you know it's just like it's so unappealing because of the gatekeepers to democracy and that you're like and we've been burned by this duopoly for so long that it's like ah fuck it you know I think that's right. And then we need to speak to people's rage and their discontent, right? And so I think to me, even something like people primarying Democrats, you know, like, you know, when you see the squad doing that, I think there's really that that is a lesson in democracy. It's like, how do you intervene in a two party system? Well, actually, some of the only competitive elections are the primaries, <laughs> because our right. because these, uh, you know, congressional districts are, are, are basically carved out. So one party is guaranteed to win. So I don't know. I mean, I think we have to yeah, we have to speak to people's discontent, their cynicism and frustration, and kind of 
um, add some fire to this campaign and set our horizons higher. You know, I'm sorry, but you're just, you can't, you can't expect the groundswell if you're just like trying to fight for some little tiny tweak. I mean, we need to, to have a bigger, more engaging vision that's guiding us as well. Yeah. We have to move on, um, but I did want to just shout out a super chat that was a question, I think, directly to you, Astra, which is uh, Robert G says, can Biden forgive FFEL student loans or only direct loans? I don't know if you know. So I, this is where you're, you've, you've like hit me at a moment where I'm like, hold on. Any so any loan that is federally backed. So we cannot if you have taken out a private student loan from a private bank, the federal government cannot cancel that. Um, but anything else. So like 95 percent of student loans. Um, and we're going to have to think, I think, creatively about what we do about these other private loans, because people do take out private loans and they're typically right. at higher interest rates and more exploitative. Um, but yeah, anything that is that is ultimately held by the federal government, he can wipe out using compromise and settlement authority. Compromise and settlement authority. It's going to be the name of the podcast, people. If you don't have it in your brain by now, get it in your brain. Astra Taylor, we have one more segment. Will you stick with us? I'm here. Okay. In honor of Hanukkah, uh, we're smack dab in the middle of this holiday. Uh, happy Hanukkah to everyone. Um, we are talking about. <laughs> we are you, talk just say happy Hanukkah, NATO. You don't need to pretend that there are. I was going to say, there. especially NATO. <laughs> no, no, happy Hanukkah to everybody. And we are talking about basically, given that Hanukkah circles around. Uh, it is the Festival of Lights, right? And the eight days uh, that oil burned, which was this miraculous thing, because after the destruction of a temple, this I'm reading this for my good friend, Yonatan Rosen, and NATO can correct me. Um, there was only enough oil to burn the menorah for one night, but instead the oil lasted eight nights. And that was the miracle. And so we want to know what does our movement for revolution need? There was oil that it, there was oil then, now what do we need going forward? This is, it takes a lot of patience. Name courtesy of our wonderful producer, Becca Roofer. Uh, it takes a lot of patience is the, uh, the, the, the antithesis of the Guns N' Roses, all you need is just a little patience. Uh, so the dialectic is moving on. I think that the title also answers what we'll need, which is number one, patience. And I wish our revolution only lasted eight days. It might. Um, depends on how well organized we are. It depends on how well organized, how many pitchforks off of Etsy we can get. Yeah. I'm telling you $17. I, I so had, what do we need? Can I tell you? I, uh, after a lifetime of, of celebrating Hanukkah, it, I, uh, I've become like a master of making latkes. And yesterday, the, the holiday that celebrates the miracle of the oil lasting for eight days, yesterday I made the latkes, I finished, and then I was like, huh, I wonder if I can save the, the frying oil for tomorrow night's latkes. And then it, and then I had to like go down the internet rabbit hole researching it before I was like, no, dummy, it's in the fucking name of the holiday. Like the whole point of the holiday is that the oil lasts. So <laughs> I don't it? need I don't need Epicurious to tell me it's it's <laughs> in the thing that the oil lasts. 
I'm going to say we can... need to move on to renewables, though. I do yeah. think in the future, all latkes will be solar fried um, yeah. and <laughs> or air fried. Oh, I used I used hemp oil. <laughs> God. But OK, what are we going to need? Astra, I'm making you go first. What are we going to need for the long haul? In, well, in this? I do have to I have to say. So one another a word for debt cancellation is the Jubilee, right? which is a Hebrew word that means trumpet. So maybe we'll need some trumpets. We'll need some joy, some noise. Um, I mean, I think we need the sustenance, right? We need, and so one thing, especially since NATO is a labor organizer, I mean, I think what we need is movements that are funded by the members that are dues funded. We need, you know, that material support. So I think about, I'm thinking about how we build organizations that are accountable to the people who are part of them and not to donors, not to philanthropists, because I think that that's a critical component of building a left that can actually build, you know, hold and wield power over the long haul. Yeah. I, I will jump and piggyback off of that and say that for me, I think we need to, in the same way we need movements that can be self-sustaining, we need media that can be self-sustaining. Please tip this show, <laughs> TBR-Live. But because, you know, I think that being beholden to some bullshit YouTube algorithm is the same thing. Like, I don't want that. I don't want that for my viewers. I don't want that for my listeners. I want this to actually be independent. I don't want to, like, name shit like, NATO destroys Astra Taylor in massive. Like, so... Um, you know, I don't want to have to rely on clickbait. So I think we're going to need honest media. We're going to need platforms that are not YouTube um, eventually. And we're going to need to drown out the, the noise of a lot of grifters and focus on, you know, facts and nuance and people who are going to bring it to you honest, i.e. me. And I wrote a book about that, too. Really? Of course. You've got a book for everything. God damn. I a book about that. It's called The People's Platform. It's about, yeah, it's about building a democratic internet. So. Wait, is there an Astra Taylor book for each of the eight days of Hanukkah? Not yet. I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Nato, what do we need besides hemp oil? Five Astra Taylor books. <laughs> Four. Um, uh, I think, um, what do we need? Uh, I think we need naps. We need naps. We need to be rested. We need just a quick, like a good 20 minute disco nap, uh, <laughs> to, you know, rev up, rev the engines, get back in the struggle. Uh, uh, a hammock situation is ideal where possible. I think that, I think we need that. Hell yeah. Naps and hammocks. I love it. <sighs> Astra Taylor, thank you so much for joining us on the Vituation Room. You you crushed it. How can people follow your work? Follow Astra Taylor on Twitter, Astra Disastra. Um, get her books. Uh, uh, let's read all of them. Um, um, I had them here. First of all, can I just say that your book reminds me of a joke that NATO has? Democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. NATO, do you remember that joke of yours? Oh, uh, um what was what was the joke? Trump may be ruining our democracy, but we weren't using it anyway. Yeah, that, that's good. I, I like that. Exactly joke. right. I we weren't using that. it anyway. You know, someone's uh, going to use it if we don't use it. <laughs> on the whiteness album, available Bandcamp, preferably. <laughs> and uh, and also Astro's book, "Can't Pay, Won't Pay: The Case for Economic Disobedience of Debt Abolition." 
just out from Haymarket Books. Thank you so much and take good care, Astra. Thanks so much for having me, y'all. Bye. Later. I think I've said Astra's name like 20,000 times because I like saying it. It's like your name, Nato. It's a fun name. Fun name. Um, Nato Green, follow him at Nato Green on Twitter, Mr. Nato Green on Instagram, and get his his comedy albums direct from Bandcamp, please. Support the arts. And what See you later. Rise up, everybody. Love you, friend. And thank you guys so much for being here. And thank you for tipping this show at Venmo or on Venmo, TBR-Live, TBR-Live on Cash App. Thank you to our producer, Becca Roofer, Kelly Carey, and Dorsey Shaw behind the scenes. Um, and once again, give this podcast five stars, like and share and subscribe. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to leave you on this. We're going to have, I'm going to call this a segment at some point. But I want to play for you just a sampling of the insanity that is still the MAGA crowds. This was the other day in Washington, D.C. Um, maybe a rap group you've never heard of and the internet had many names for. Just listen to the lyrics here. Why did Obama send money to that Wuhan lab? What is George Soros doing with all of his cash? Why did China take that horror guy and drop him a bag? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Why did China take the horror guy and drop him a bat? Anyway, uh, that was at a MAGA rally in D.C., uh, a rap group uh, playing to the whitest crowd ever. Uh, and a lot of fun names. Go look them up. My name for them would be 50 cents an hour. Um, but until next week, don't just bitch about it. Be about it. Bye-bye.